www.ckut.ca on the World Wide Web. News, interviews, and music featuring the voices of prisoners, their allies, and supporters. Tune in to the Prison Radio Show on the fourth Friday of every month between 11 a.m. and noon, and every second Thursday of the month between 5 and 6 p.m. To get involved in Prison Radio, or if you need to access past programs, email prison at ckut.ca. Rehabilitation. I wonder if you know what the word means. Do you? It comes from the Latin root habilis. The definition is to invest again with dignity. You consider that part of your job, Harvey, to give a man back the dignity he once had? Your only interest is in how he behaves. You'll conform to our ideas of how you should behave. Number, you weren't a man, you wanted to get a human. I wasn't Jim Crow, and hell, I was number 586. Why do you do a warder's job? It's a good job. Responsible job. Uh, officers like myself trying to... Scum. We're only enforcing the law. Oh, the law. The law. When they hang my husband, is that just... Good morning and welcome to the Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM. Today we'll be hearing an interview with Clementine Morgan about psychiatric incarceration. We'll be hearing another piece from Jean, this time about empathy. Finally, we'll be re-airing the rest of our interview with folks from the Perilous Chronicle, which, due to technical difficulties, we were unable to air all of for our show in February. But first, some news. According to an article in the Hamilton Spectator from mid-March, there was a rally outside Barton Street Jail in Hamilton on March 16th at 2 p.m. The rally was organized by families of loved ones who have died in Barton and other correctional centers who are frustrated by the lack of action across provincial jails in Ontario. Many people have died of overdoses in provincial jails in Ontario. The Ministry of Community Safety and Correctional Services has until May to respond to 62 recommendations made by an inquest jury 10 months ago. 
We will now hear from Clementine Morgan, who will be speaking with us about psychiatric incarceration. She has recently published an article in the Journal of Disability Studies titled Failure to Comply, Madness and Slash As Testimony. Uh, Clementine, welcome to the Prison Radio Show here on CQT. Uh, perhaps I can first ask you to introduce yourself. Who are you and why are you here? Thanks for having me. I am a writer. I write a thing called Fucking Magic, and I have three books, um, which are called Rupture, The Size of a Bird, and uh, You Can't Own the Fucking Stars. And mostly I come out of the tradition of zines, so I've been making zines for like well over a decade, and I write a lot about trauma and sexuality, queerness, um, and then I've dabbled in some academic work, so I did a paper um, called Failure to Comply, um, Madness and as Testimony, which I presented at the Anarchist Studies Conference, which I guess is how you heard about me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so again, welcome to the show. Uh, today we are going to talk about that article, uh, which was published in the Canadian Journal of Disability Studies in 2017. Um, it's, it's about psychiatric incarceration, mm-hmm. a generally... Tell, tell us, tell listeners what the article is about. Okay, cool. So it's a paper that's sort of an unusual academic paper because it's about at least 50% like personal narrative. Um, so it, it uses testimony as a genre um, to center like knowledge of people with lived experience as opposed to just having like people who haven't been locked up talking about it. Um, and so I tell stories largely about my experience in a lockup unit um, called Youthdale uh, in Toronto that I I was locked up there when I was 15. So it's a youth psychiatric unit in downtown Toronto. And I had a lot of fucked up experiences there. And um, so I base uh, my thesis in that paper on those experiences and then also on some subsequent experiences that I've had uh, with psychiatric industrial complex since then. Um, And largely, the paper's about two things. One, as I said, it's about the importance of testimony and the way that testimony functions as knowledge and how um, listening to survivors and people who have actually had those experiences is really important for us to understand uh, what goes on in the psychiatric industrial complex. Um, And then secondly, probably the most important argument that I'm making is that the The goal of the psychiatric industrial complex is to produce compliance, not healing. Um, And so I think that's really important because I still think there's a large misunderstanding, even in a lot of activist spaces that I'm in, that that that's about health and like healing and that it's kind of a neutral or positive force. So even people who don't trust cops, like don't necessarily think that it's as bad or as scary to call an ambulance on somebody. And I think that there's a big misunderstanding about what the consequences of that can be for a lot of people. And also, yeah, the idea that because there's doctors involved, that it necessarily means it's a positive or healing experience. And that paper is largely talking about tactics that are used to produce uh, compliance for the people who who are locked up or are having encounters. Also thinking about it because I... I I wrote this paper a while ago. It's more is coming back to me. Um, another thing that I'm saying in that paper is that 
what is defined as basically like craziness or as like symptoms is actually often like strategies of resistance against violence. So like in my case, self-injury and like a lot of the acting out that I was doing was in response to surviving sexual violence that was happening in my family. And so like looking at my behavior, I'm like, that was actually a really smart behavior that I was doing because I was drawing attention to really um, bad things that were happening to me. And given that I had no other recourse to stop the violence that was happening to me, this like acting out of like self-harming or other behaviors that are seen as crazy um, can actually be like really smart strategies. And in fact, in my case, it got me my behavior, although it did land me in a psych ward, also resulted in me not having to see my abuser anymore. So it was actually pretty smart. But of course, nobody in the psych ward told me that it was smart. They just told me that I needed to stop doing it. I want to pick up on the last thing that you said about the psych ward telling you that you needed to stop doing it. And I feel that like that phrase uh, conjures up the title of, mm-hmm. of your work, which is um, about failure to comply. So, so there you're hinting at, um, you know, this this idea of compliance. And so, I'd like you to tell us how how does psychiatry, how do the psych wards, um, what are they trying to accomplish? How are they enforcing compliance? Yeah. So. I think a lot of people are kind of shocked when I tell them the things that happened to me in there. But yeah, keep in mind, this is a youth psych ward. So I was 15 years old. And the first thing that they did, um, and I guess I should also give content warning, like that I'm going to be talking about some violent things um, for listeners. But um, yeah, so content warning for sexual violence. Um, But yeah, the first thing that they did was get me to strip naked and uh, shower in front of a person that I had just met. Um, and this was not, it was not explained to me beyond that it was like for my own good and was part of procedure that I needed to do this. But I was just made to strip naked and shower um, and like turn around in front of them. Um, I guess they are, they would probably say that they were doing that to inspect me to see if I was bringing in anything dangerous, but why I needed to be dripping wet when that was happening, why I needed to shower in front of them. Also, they took away my glasses um, at that time and didn't give them back to me until I was inside the unit. So like all of that together was like obviously an extremely disorienting and upsetting experience. And I understand that to be sexual violence um, because I didn't have any consent in that situation. I had no choice. Um, And also I was in there because I was a survivor of sexual violence. So to do that to, you know, a 15-year-old in general is really wrong, and especially given my history, that was really traumatic for me. Um, and then once I was inside, basically any kind of intelligent thought that I had or perspective that I wanted to share on my own experience was shut down. I was just told that I had a chemical imbalance. Um, and so I was told that I needed to be medicated. Um, and. I didn't want to be medicated. I was told that I had to be medicated. And basically, there's a lot of threat. Like, there's a sense of threat in the space. And that threat is communicated in the way that the the people in charge talk to me. And it's also communicated in the way that they treated the other um, people who were locked up there. So even if I didn't act out... I saw other people who were, and when I say people, I, I mean children, because I was 15, I was one of the oldest people there, so like kids who are like 10 years old, who are like upset because 
they don't like what's being served for dinner and they cry about it, which is like a normal thing for a 10-year-old to do, if they would not be quiet, they would be taken away and we would just hear they're crying and like abruptly stop and then not see them for a couple days and they would come back totally compliant you know so that kind of threat of like we don't know what's happening when people are being taken away but obviously it's pretty scary um also people who are locked up are not allowed to engage in their own conversations or talk to each other except for in like really controlled ways determined by the the people in charge so yeah um there's a lot of really like violent and, and coercive and controlling behaviors. And basically I learned that in order to get out of there, I had to do what I was told and be good. So here we have institutions instilling obedience. And so here is maybe where I would, I would ask you to compare maybe like psychiatry and, um, and, and prisons or other forms of incarceration. Yeah, so I have not been locked up in prison, so I feel that I can't speak very much to like the, the lived experience of that. I've known people who have, but generally I think that taking people's freedom away, deciding what they get to do and what they don't get to do, forcing them to, you know, eat when they, they say so and sleep when they say so um, and to not have like space for their own personal thoughts and ideas um, and to literally not be allowed to go outside is wrong in all cases. And so, yeah, I definitely think it's part of the same conversation. Um, and that like, like prison abolition also needs to consider like psychiatric lockup as well, because it's also taking away people's freedom. Um, you'd made mention of uh, other people who were there with you. And in the article, you also make mention of community and finding community. And so I'm wondering if you could maybe speak more to how you found community among psychiatric survivors. That's the, that's the phrase that you used in the article. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the really disturbing things about being locked up with these other kids was that we weren't allowed to speak to each other. And they would purposefully do things like keep those of us who were, had most in common apart. So like at a at like dinner, like we would all be sitting at different tables. And me as like a 15-year-old girl would be seated with like 10-year-old boys. And the other 15-year-old girls would never be sat at the same table as me so that we could not engage in conversation. And if we ever tried to speak directly to each other, we would be stopped. Um, one memory that I, I think I talk about in the article is like later once I had been there for a while and I was thoroughly terrified and not trying to resist anymore this new girl came into the psych ward and at like in the evening they would they would make us watch tv and she tried to speak to me so she was sitting on the couch next to me and she tried to speak to me while like staring straight ahead at the the tv and not looking at me so that we could have a conversation without them knowing but I was so terrified of the consequences of that that I like wouldn't answer her, which is really upsetting um, to think about. I've often wondered about like how amazing it would be and how powerful it would be to ever be able to speak to any of those people again who I was in there with. But of course, we have no way of finding each other and we only knew each other's first names. That was a long time ago. But um, in terms of outside, yeah, I think I was really alienated for a long time. Um, and I actually think that so many of the ways that people with these experiences come together 
is through these systems, right? And I avoided any kind of psychiatric anything for years and years after that. I still do. Um, but now I go to like non-psychiatric therapy. But prior to that, I wouldn't even do that because I was so scared of the potential of getting locked up. And so um, there are movements that I later found out about, like Mad Pride, um, which I don't know if there's an equivalent of that here in Montreal, but in Toronto, they have Mad Pride. And so, yeah, like things like that where um, where people who have been locked up or who have had other experiences with psychiatry can come together um, and share community. I also am pretty involved in like addiction community and like people who have experiences with like drug use and stuff like that. So I found a lot of community in that regard too. And there's a lot of overlap. A lot of those people have also had experiences with psychiatry. Okay, so you call out super hard the psychiatric industrial complex. Um, you take a, a, a pretty strict anti-psychiatry stance. Clearly, you're pointing to ways that psych wards reinforce sexual violence. I'm wondering if maybe you could tell us a little bit more about um, alternatives or like what healing would really look like. Yeah, what are some other like solutions? Where do you look to for hope in terms of like ending these types of traumas? Mm -hmm. So yeah, first of all, I want to be clear that I absolutely don't make any judgment or or make any sort of claim to know what's best for other people. And there are people who engage with psychiatry in various ways that feel okay for them. Um, so for me, it's more about like freedom and choice, like that. There are people who take psychiatric medications and they choose to do so and that should be available. Um, what I take issue with is that I didn't want to be on them and that was not something that I was given the choice about. And so, yeah, I do think that like that kind of medication and those approaches should be available to people who want them. But I think we should be a lot more critical of it as an overall institution and look at like what actually is happening and what the actual um, intentions are of a lot of these institutions. Um, because, yeah, as I was saying, I think a lot of people are really uncritical. Like, when that whole Bell Let's Talk thing was going on, there were people who were like, yeah, Bell's awful, capitalism is awful. If you really want to help, just give your money directly to, like, psychiatric institutions. Like, that is a good idea. And I'm like, wow. Like, the and those people are genuinely well-meaning and they don't realize, like, when people are saying, like, people, like, with mental health stuff really deserve resources and support. It's like, yeah, but, but we need, like, particular resources and support. Um, so, yeah, these days, like, I go to therapy when I... Like, I have complex PTSD. Like, I use that that kind of psychiatric language for myself. I feel comfortable with that. Um, but I won't see someone who is going to try to medicate me or who thinks using that lens, like, really heavily. Um, so I always, when I'm, like, interviewing a therapist, like, I talk about that. Um, I still understand the rules that, like, you can't say that you have an intent to harm yourself or someone else because then they can still lock you up. But, like, other than that, I choose uh, therapists who are not going to go there um, and who prefer um, a non-psychiatric approach to therapy. And there is a lot available um, in that regard. Obviously, it's, like, super inaccessible. Um, I try to find sliding scale um, therapists that I can afford. That's still something that I really need. But other than that, like, 
I find a lot of healing in community. Um, I do like a lot of like mutual care um, and community of care stuff with the people that I love and the people in my life. I also like I'm a writer and like do so much um, of like making sense and making meaning out of the things that have happened in my life through writing. Um, and yeah, so like community and like also what I was talking about in the article about testimony, like having survivors, um, like psych survivors and also um, survivors in general, like survivors of sexual violence and so on, just talking about our lived experience with each other can be so healing and is actually what was prevented in the psych ward. Yeah, and I do, like, I'm, like, super highly psychoeducated for someone who's so critical of psychiatric industrial complex. Like, I like to read a lot of books and, like, learn about their theories and their ideas and, like, take what makes sense to me and what works for me without actually engaging with the people who have the power. That's so great. Um, to go back to this idea of testimony, when you wrote this article, you're sharing your story with us here now and um, you presented your work at the North American Anarchist Studies Conference. What kind of um, feedback have you received? Yeah, a lot of people reach out to me, um, not just about this article, but um, I mean, the writing that I do in general is could go into the genre of testimony. Like I, I consider it to be creative nonfiction, but I write a lot about my life. I write a lot about surviving uh, like child abuse and sexual violence in particular. And yeah, I receive so much feedback all the time um, from other survivors getting in touch and thanking me and sharing their stories. Um, and yeah, after presenting this paper at the conference, like I had people come up and talk to me about it, um, which is really powerful and good. It's also something that I need to like kind of like take care of myself and have boundaries around because a lot of people are really desperate to talk about this stuff and there's very few places to do it but also I am a crazy traumatized person with only so much capacity um, so I have to do it in like a boundaried way but I am still always really happy to talk to other survivors and especially survivors who are coming into consciousness about the fact that what happened to them was fucked up. Um, Clementine I'd like to thank you very much for your time thanks for coming in and speaking with here on the prison radio show did you have any final thoughts or comments you'd like to share with listeners at all about any of the points that we touched on about trauma and its relationship to psychiatric incarceration or healing or community or anything? Sure. I think there's a couple things that are still in my head. Um, one is just like, I feel like something we didn't really get to that I talk about in the paper is just that like, I don't think people realize necessarily the kind of hypervigilance that can come from surviving that kind of thing, from being locked up, and how avoiding that happening again can really, like, result in a lot of, like, terror and also people, like, don't understand how something they think is going to be helpful can actually feel really threatening to people who have those experiences. So, like, for example, recently I was having a really bad mental health day and I was, like, crying outside and um, a person stopped and was like, are you okay? And like, that should be a nice interaction. But for me, I, it was like terrifying because I I was concerned. Like, is this person, if I don't respond in the appropriate way, is this person gonna call an ambulance on me? Am I acting too crazy? How crazy am I acting, you know? So because this stuff is all wrapped up with care, like I really invite people to think about that when offering care, that 
we should do so in ways that really respect people's agency and like their autonomy and really make that clear that we are respecting that agency and autonomy so that attempts at offering care don't come across um, as a threat. And then also just that like I think that crazy people and like psychiatrized people are like really brilliant and smart and the things that we have done are like really um, intense strategies for survival and the fact that we are surviving is really amazing and it's not just that we have like quote mental illness it's that we're people who have gone through shit and are trying to find ways to survive so I'm really into like celebrating that and like sharing knowledge and and skills in those communities so that we can um, find ways to take care of each other when we're having a hard time with our mental health stuff. Thank you again for joining us here on the Prison Radio Show on SKUT. Thanks for having me. That was an interview with Clementine Morgan speaking about psychiatric incarceration as a form of state violence. You can find more of her work on her website, clementinemorrigan.com. The time is currently 11.25 a.m. and you are listening to The Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM, 91.7 on cable, and www.ckut.ca. When you're not paying for a product, you are the product. Especially in web and email services, where multinationals compete to manage your communication so they can make a profit off of the private communication you are producing. Kumbit is a worker cooperative trying to help small organizations or individuals get their email, website creation, and website hosting services off corporate services such as Google. For more information, contact us at kumbit.org or email at info at kumbit.org. That's K-O-U-M-B-I-T. We are not on Facebook. Hi, everyone. This is Gene, coordinator of the Prison Radio Show, and today is another one of my little opinion pieces. I went to Vanier College for a symposium, and it was based on empty... I went there with Virginia, quite a trip, and when I read what it was about, I thought of the role empathy plays in our prison, especially the lack thereof, and how it affects the quality of a prisoner's life and how to overcome the dehumanizing impact of prisons. And today I have a friend of mine, Ben, and he's going to ask me some questions, so... Hey, um, I guess my first question, Gene, is like, how, how did you get invited to the symposium? Well, like I said, I was sent a worksheet of the symposium. It was sent to me by Virginia, who I did a presentation with, and she brought slides. It was in a little amphitheater, so it was quite a, quite the trip, quite a lot of people for me. And we showed slides, and she talked about the history of prisons, and, and my part of it was talking about someone who experienced life in the Canadian penitentiary system, what I viewed as empathy in prison. Um, so what exactly is empathy, in your words? Well, empathy, uh, actually, I'll borrow a few lines from, from the worksheet. So what they said was, empathy is generally recognized as the entwined ability to understand and to share the emotions of the other. Empathy, like compassion, can uplift one's well-being, enrich relationships, solidify the societal fabric, and even bridge international divide. So at one end of the spectrum, empathy could be a force for the betterment of society, but in my opinion, it starts at the individual level. Every person learns values and behaviors during their formative years through parenting, schooling, community living, and society at large. I believe the majority of people know and understand empathy, hopefully to not only better themselves, but those around them and beyond. And earlier on, you mentioned the lack thereof of empathy in prisons. So could you explain the lack of empathy in prisons? First of all, you've got to realize, that, as everybody probably does, that there are places where normal societal values are much different than what we experience in our everyday life. And I'm talking about time in the Canadian federal penitentiary system. 
You know, we can view prisons as many societies that our country shudders away from the public view. You know, government wants their citizens to fear going to prison for breaking their laws, but at the same time want to keep them ignorant to the harsh conditions and mistreatment prisoners endure behind the walls and bars. Now, people who go to prison committed a crime, we know that, but most arrive there with basically the same values as the average citizen. But as I said, prison life is very different. It's a structured, strict environment designed to punish, control, and break the spirit. You know, like governments love to say how they're rehabilitating prisoners for safe return to society, but that's laughable. Rehabilitation is just a public relations word they toss around. In reality, their actions completely void the word of its very meaning. From the first person ever locked up in this country right to present, the sole goal of the federal prison system is the punishment and control. And by example, steal fear and control over citizens to obey the laws that those in power make. Yeah, you mentioned power. So how do you think them reinforcing a lack of empathy helps them keep power? Okay, from the moment you're arrested, you're almost always double or triple bunk. Now, this is the first thing they see. When they go to the pen, they arrive in a bus, all shackled and put in little cages, and then they go and they're hustled into a block full of screaming, loud noise, and they're packed two, three to a cell. Now, and this is just, these are cells that are designed for a single occupant. So that's a cold reality you're faced when you first get into the system. There's all kinds of emotions around, a lot of anger, rage, fear. You know, like, I mean, you can see it and feel it. And you taste it. It's everywhere. There's the never-ending stress of the next expected or unexpected uh, act of insanity. And, you know, the majority of prisoners are under 30 years of age. And uh, they all have this survival of the fittest mentality. So you have plenty with the youth and the mindset. Everybody thinks they have to be... Uh, certain conduct themselves a certain way you know plenty of arguments and violence so you you know you don't go to prison to make friends but you have to learn how to respect people or another con or and do time the right way otherwise it'll be a long stay in hell for you or a short one if you cross the wrong man now there are national rules and guideline policies in place in all federal prisons Every penitentiary also makes up their own standing orders and rules which lead to more abuse by wardens and guards against prisoners prisoners need to learn these rules but more importantly on how to conduct themselves amongst their fellow prisoners. You know, you break a, a break of a prison rule can get you thrown in a hole, but breaking the concrete can get you hurt or killed. You know, learning to deal with guards is another story. Overtly or smoldering under service, the majority of guards despise prisoners and vice versa, not to mention the usual prisoner problems of uh, unwarranted cell lockdowns, crappy food, and inadequate health care services, and the list can go on and on. So I guess you're saying there's written rules about how you have to interact with guards and stuff, but like, what are some of the unwritten rules about how you can display empathy in prisons? Everybody sees things that they know are right and wrong. Everybody can feel empathy, but sometimes you don't want to act on them because act on those feelings because you know weakness can be looked down upon. Others can ridicule you, so you to not face ridicule or have problems. You know you might not show an act of uh, empathy that you would to someone that you would in a normal situation. So that there just reinforces the mindset. But prison makes you that way. You know, like I was saying, you're going into such a different environment than you grew up in on the street, and you go there, and it's built in such a way that you. You put up barriers against any positive emotions you want. It all has to be, you know, hard, tough, and mentally, you know, so... It's hard to show acts of empathy openly because of the, the prison system does it. But, I mean, you have to. We're, everybody's still human, and, and people actually... Uh, do acts like I mean usually somebody who uh, is well known or respected or 
or somebody who nobody wants to screw around with. But sometimes it takes somebody like that to do an act that others people can jump on and say, okay, you know, he's doing it so it's all right for me to do. And because, you know, people do lead by example. In jail, the might makes right rule applies a lot. He who has the most might makes the right, you know. If somebody actually does it in the right way, I think it can influence other people to come forward and do it. Because I, like I believe most people in prison do feel empathy for others. It's just acting upon them is the question. So in cases where prisoners are expressing empathy and expressing their concerns, how does the state respond to that? That's a whole other thing there, because they don't like to see any kind of, uh, you know, like if people actually used empathy to unite, because anything can unite, you know, like it's hard to get prisoners together on things, but it's usually the common goal things. But I mean, empathy can be anything from somebody getting thrown in a hole, somebody sick going to the hospital, who is not getting the treatment, you know, you're fighting for your fellow guy. And if it's a reason that affects the population as a whole, mostly get on board. If it affects just a handful of people, they won't. But the thing is, if you do get together, for things that unite the prisoners, then the administration doesn't like that. They don't like anything that unites. They want to keep everybody split apart. You don't want, it's easier for them to uh, implement unpopular policies and one-sided rules on a fragmented prison population, you know, and they'll go to Crescent Lanes to keep it like that. They'll play one group against another. They'll transfer prisoners to other prisons in the region or even out of region to other regions, you know, uh, disrupting their families. That's a threat they hold over people's heads. We'll transfer you all over, cause you problems. They'll have guards harass prisoners who fight for better treatment. They'll throw prisoners in SEG or the hole for a so-called good order of institution, deny transfers to lower security prisons, negative pro-recommendations. I mean, they can do a lot of things, you know. So uh, just remember, a citizen is helpless against the state's power. Imagine how crushing it against a prisoner. Now, you know, I just wanted you guys to know that empathy alone won't unite prisoners in a show of strength against the prison system. But if enough prisoners show each other empathy, they will have reinforced amongst themselves that being a human in an inhuman environment can lead to less stress, to less fear, and a more harmonious existence. And that will show the prison administration as there is yet another faucet that unites prisoners. But, uh, you know, like I said, if the majority of prisoners can stick through the repercussions and threat, then COC may compromise on some of these things. But, you know, rest assured, they'll never, ever capitulate on anything they consider major. Otherwise, in their views, they are not running the prison. The prisoners are. And that, the government, any government will never allow. Right. So I guess maybe a better question is, how the heck can we get the state to have some flipping empathy and, like, give up some of its power, you know? Because they see this empathy and they immediately see it as a threat to their power, and that's really all they care about, it seems like. Well, the only way the state is going to change is if the population outside changes, you know. Like if, if enough people in society, or enough citizens, vote for change and voice a change, then they'll do it. But unfortunately, crime is viewed negatively by the majority of people, and obviously there's a reason for that. But, you know, there's a lot of the lock up and throw away the key mentality out there. You know, people aren't thinking these things true. Like 99% of the people, more than that, are coming back out, some multiple times. So when you punish them, you want to punish them and punish them punish them but you're coming back out so what kind of people do you want back out but the thing is we have to just educate the public more and more and things like that you know the people coming out what they're doing in prison you know they say oh they go in there they learn a trade there's no trades to learn in prison anymore they took all the trades out they don't want to
want to pay the instructors their wages. They didn't want to buy equipment and material to teach guys trades. So they just cut it out. The Harper government, 10 years, the Harper government gutted the penitentiary system and took everything out. And it's all based, just all it is right now is just, there's no such thing as rehabilitation. It's all 100% just punishment. You know, now you're going to have not only people coming out more bitter, you keep them in longer and you give them nothing to do. Now they come out with no trades, no nothing. So public, you know, they're going to have a lot more to cry about in the future because people, this is going to get worse. More and more people are coming out because you're putting more people in and you can't keep them. That's why guys get paroled. They said, ah, oh, the prison systems are full, so we'll let guys out five years earlier or a year earlier we wouldn't. So that's how we have to change. We have to have the public get on board. Public can come the public, the public, yeah, well, it'd be good, you know, if the public, and that's a hard sell, too, having public have empathy for prisoners because they say, okay, this guy, so, you know, maybe somebody in their family or somebody they know or read about in the papers, they look at the worst crimes all the time, like murder, and they say, okay, you know, they, but they paint everybody with the same brush, and that's what the government always does. They always take the most heinous crime, and they say, see, this is why we need to uh, lock them away forever, this is why we need this, this is why I have to take away that. But uh, like I said, the vast, vast majority of people in jail are in there for smaller sentences for drugs, because drugs, because they're drug addicts, or they're, they're breaking into some place, or they're doing fraud. And as for murderers, too, like the vast majority, the majority of people in jail for murders aren't some hitman or criminal thing like that. They're in there for crimes of passion. It's wives and husbands killing each other, or their children, or something. It's, you know, so, you know, these guys are all citizens until they do one act, you know, and then all of a sudden uh, the family that's against crime and lock them up. When their son or uh, husband or wife or whatever goes to jail, now all of a sudden they have, how come they're in there forever? How come they can't get parole? You know, but that's how it goes. You just take one mistake and you could go to jail. So, you know, obviously they want punishment. They're going to get punishment. You got to be smart about it and you got to say, okay, what's what's enough and what's too much? And what are we going to do to help these guys to actually have a chance to get out? Now, you know, I think the majority of people would would buy into that if they knew. But if they knew how their government, how the prisons really are and what is happening, I think they'd have a little bit more compassion. But that's the only way it's going to change is if the public gets on board. That's the only way, in my view, it's going to change. So maybe what's needed is empathy plus some education to like dispel the ignorance around the general population because people really are ignorant to what's going on that's for sure and it's really hard to get the message out like this is what we're doing now we're we're trying to you know put this on air and hopefully we educate some people or get at least get them talking about it or thinking about it and maybe in another way but there's all kinds of groups there's you know there's prison rights groups there's uh, lawyers there's uh, societies like uh, the john howard society you know there are people and there are groups and there are professors and universities and there's students and there's volunteers who who do try in various ways, you know, uh, through poverty, through immigration, through prisons, to try to, to tell the public, you know, what's going on and maybe offer some, some solutions. So, yeah, the message is hard to get out, but it's, you know, it's almost a thankless job for some of these people. They work really hard. They spend years of their life trying to push something that seems like pushing a rock up a mountain, you know. It just seems like it's such a thankless thing, but I'll tell you what, you know, because they believe that's the right thing to do. And, you know, you may not change a lot of people's minds, but you got to change somebody's and if you don't, if you don't talk about it, if you don't try to get the word up, then what? If, you, if you're silent, believe me, everything, anything that people do know now, or any little gains you have, they're gone. All right. Well, thanks for talking to me about empathy, Gene. I feel like uh, you had a lot of cool stuff to say, and I learned a lot. Thanks, Ben. Okay. Israeli Apartheid Week 2019, March 18th to 25th, at campuses and community spaces across Montreal. 
Join us for a week of panels, workshops, film screenings, demonstrations, and cultural events to raise awareness around the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions campaign. Events to include workshops on Palestine 101, pinkwashing, and the Stop the JNF campaign, panels on land and gender justice in Turtle Island and Palestine, as well as Palestinian diaspora from one state violence to another, an open mic poetry night, and a film screening of Nyla and the Uprising. That's March 18th to March 25th at campuses and community spaces across Montreal. More information is available at IAW MTL at riseup.net. Israeli Apartheid Week 2019, a CKUT co-presentation. That was Prison Radio Coordinator Jean talking about the role of empathy. Up next, we're re-airing an interview we did in February with Duncan from the Perilous Chronicle. Perilous is a new project that launched in February 2019. It's a website of mass prisoner resistance since 2010 in the U.S. and in Canada. You can find them online at perilouschronicle.com. You may have heard part of this interview in one of our February shows, but due to technical difficulty, we had to cut it short. So today we are re-airing the full interview. Do you want to start by introducing yourself and explaining what the Perilous Chronicle is? So my name's Duncan, and I'm part of the team that's working on Perilous, which is a chronicle of prisoner unrest across the U.S. and Canada from 2010 to the present. That means is a, it's, a, it's a website um, and, and a digital tool to explore the series of, and, and diverse set of uh, prisoner collective action over the past nine years. Um, and our, our framework is basically any event that, ha- that involves two or more prisoners that is, has as its target uh, something related to the conditions of confinement, or uh, abusive guards, or uh, or even incarceration itself. So yeah, anything that falls within that category, we're trying to catalog and put on this website and make accessible via different sorting and browsing tools. Can you tell us a bit about how the idea for this project came about? Like what led to the creation of the website? I think it's, it came out of, I, I don't know all of the prehistory, but I, I think that um, there's been a series of conversations over the past few years of, of, of seeing something like this as a gap in what's becoming a pretty dynamic and and massive uh, movement that's like that's that's uh, that's looking critically at incarceration from many different angles, but there has yet to be uh, until perilous like one centralized place uh, where where people could look at um, these things in, in a sequence in a timeline and and. Um, I mean, so and that's one of the things we try to pull out is that you, you, at different events, you can link to different uh, things that happened at the facility in the past. So like this, this hunger strike followed up on a hunger strike six months ago, which followed up on a hunger strike uh, like a year ago that followed up on a protest and so on and so forth. And I, I, I think that the, there's also an intervention of a lot of this, this history of the past nine years is, is uh, told in really haphazard manners. Uh, and it often doesn't include things written or interviews done by prisoners. So that's one small intervention that's really important to us is is telling this history of of resistance uh, to incarceration in various ways and telling that and making sure that as much as possible, prisoners' voices are included in that history. Can you give us an example of a couple recent things that have been posted on the site? 
Yeah, totally. So I guess that's like a parallel goal of the site is not only to be a chronicle and in some ways like an archive of, of events from the past, but also try to be a, a resource for events that are unfolding in the present. So we have a, our most recent post is about a hunger strike at Yuba County Jail in California, in which immigrants detained by ICE are uh, on hunger strike. And so that, that post has their demands and some background context and so on and so forth. And we, we also covered the, uh, the work stoppage at, uh, in, in Minnesota in December. So, yeah, ideally, we're, we're, we'll fill both of these roles so we can we, people can explore the history of prisoner action, but also like kind of go to an authoritative source to understand events that are unfolding in the present. Do you guys have a really amazing about about us section on the website? And in mm-hmm. it, it says that since 2010, there's been a, quote, steadily rising wave of prison rebellion that you all think constitutes a mm-hmm. nationwide mo- social movement. And you kind of mentioned this mm-hmm. in, in your, like, why why create this kind of website? How did the idea for this come about? And part of that idea is, like, wanting to make this nationwide social movement more visible. Can you talk about this a little bit mm-hmm. more and, and give us, like, a sense of why I talk about prisoner resistance in this way and what's maybe changing since 2010? Mm-hmm. I, there's a couple, I think... Uh, aspects of that. I think that especially in 2016 and 2018 are those are maybe the most notable like national coordinated actions, sometimes called nationwide prisoner strikes. And these, uh, these have in actually a lot of ways, like it feels like broken through into uh, mainstream media, what is actually a fairly consistent and persistent uh, level of prisoner unrest. So, but also these are not coming out of, out of uh, these, these events have histories um, that go back, I mean, obviously, even, even decades prior to the beginning of this project, but we're volunteers, so we have to start somewhere. So we're starting in 2010. Uh, but, you know, we could trace it back to George Jackson and Attica and so on and so forth. So I, I think that uh, it's, it's hard, and it's hard to say for sure, I, I know, to, to say that, like, there's more actions now than there were 10 years ago. I, I just, I don't, I, 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 I can't say that definitively, but... Um, it, there is many actions happening right now. Like we recorded in 61 last year um, and we're finding more every day and adding them when we can. And I, and I think, uh, so I, I think it's in some ways that count one, one of the things that came out of, of seeing these like 2016 and 2018 really break through in, into mainstream media and like really influence the way people are talking about incarceration and also like alternatives to incarceration but we want it to be like, well, this stuff's actually happening all the time. And maybe these are like, these are coordinated and they share uh, a day all across the country, and uh, including Canada. But, um, you know, there, there's these connective tissues between these different events. And so related to that, of, of, of well, something we want to do with the website is not just, this isn't a website just for people studying incarceration in the academy or prison abolitionists or so on and so forth. It is for all these people, but we're hoping that it can, it can assist in breaking through into uh, sort of more mainstream media sources and, and can, uh, cause I mean, like there's, there's articles that come out in, in different sorts of, uh, you know, more mainstream sources that but lots of people around the country read, uh, lots of people around the world read, and they, they'll actually like misrepresent certain actions or they'll give some incorrect number about the number of, you know, uprisings that occurred in this and this, uh, this and that year. So ideally, seeing kind of and being impressed and, and, and really like excited about the way that the 2016 and 2018 strike broke through and, and became part of a national conversation, you know, this national conversation should be happening all the time. And, and, and having prisoner uh, actions at the center of that is, is important to us. So 
in that way, actually, we're not even like um, we might have our own particular political beliefs and and those probably come through in certain ways in the project. But like we're hoping that this can actually be a project that lots of people with lots of different backgrounds can can make use of, because we think that this having having what prisoners do and what prisoners say about what they do and seeing if we can capture as much of that as possible. We think that's a really important part of these ongoing conversations about what to do within this crisis of mass incarceration. You talked a little bit about how it seems like you guys have many different ideas about who you're hoping will use the website and for what purposes and things you've mentioned so far, like people using it to keep up with the news about unfolding Mm -hmm. uh, acts of prisoner resistance and also people looking to Mm -hmm. do a little bit more like historical in the last eight years or nine years uh, research about Mm -hmm. what's been changing. Are there other ways Mm -hmm. that you're hoping the website will get used? Are there other groups of people you haven't mentioned yet who you're hoping will use the website for different reasons? I, I think ideally we could expand in, in lots of different ways. Uh, one thing, one immediate way that we're hoping to expand it is have a place that prisoners can contact us directly with their own accounts of actions that they witnessed or participated in. And uh, I mean, cause for, for example, lots of these actions on here, there's like, we, we, you hear that like, oh, they presented some list of demands to a warden or so on and so forth. And a lot of times we're not actually, we don't have those demands yet on the site and something like that. If prisoners could find out about the site and, and reach out directly to, to us via, you know, via mail or something like that, then, um, so in that way it would be actually a way for like prisoners to directly get their side of the story uh, out to the public. But on this, on a more technical side, I think another way we'd like to expand is, is do, do, do better stuff with the data that we've already collected. And that means, um, you know, ideally expanded to visualizations. We could do mapping projects of these actions. We could do better sort of statistical analysis and stuff like that. Right now we're really proud of what's up on the site, but um, there's, there's lots of more research that could come out of and conclusions that could be drawn from, from the stuff up there. So that's another way that we'd like to expand. So you mentioned that, like, of course, you guys are coming from, like, a political angle in wanting to do this project. And I'm wondering Mm -hmm. uh, if you could talk a little bit more about, like, what that angle is, but also how that angle affects, like, what you think the the point of spreading more widespread knowledge of prisoner resistance will be. Like, what kind of an effect are you hoping that spreading this this knowledge more widely and potentially spreading, like, more accurate knowledge about what's happening on the inside? How is that going to affect mm-hmm. the growing conversation around incarceration, especially, like, mass incarceration and the way it's framed in the U.S.? I think, we like, we generally share uh, a commitment to that, um, that uh, like, mass incarceration and, 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 uh, and prisons are not, they're not working. And maybe you can make some historical claim that they've never worked, but it's, it's becoming increasingly obvious for people all, all across the political spectrum, actually. I mean, this is something I know, I know a lot about uh, the prison system in Michigan, for instance, and like the, the libertarian right actually is, is, you know, pushing and passing uh, lots of these sort of reform bills. And, uh, and I mean, and in some ways they seem similar to uh, leftist solutions. In some ways they don't seem at all. Right. But, but uh, I think that uh, the more that uh, the people actually on the front lines of this issue, the prisoners themselves, they, they have, I mean, the, many of us that have corresponded with or family members or friends that have been uh, in prison. I mean, uh, these people have many different sorts of opinions and solutions about the crisis of mass incarceration. And, and an easy way to think about some of those, you know, solutions or, or thoughts or, uh, you know, criticisms of it, if they're manifested in these different protests and hunger strikes and riots and uprisings 
food strikes and all these things we catalog on the site. So I think as, as like the, the general political thing that I think the project is committed to is that there, there, uh, mass incarceration is in, is in a crisis and people from lots of different political backgrounds with lots of different agendas are, are proposing solutions. And uh, we think as a very basic way, the more that prisoners can be part of that, uh, this movement happening right now, and, and the more that they're sort of the reasons for the protests, the reasons for the things that they're doing, um, as well as just general knowledge of like, at a very basic way, it's like one of the ways that mass incarceration is in crisis is that like, there's no way to do it that won't provoke protests. Like that's like the basic thesis of the site. And that's not a, I don't know, that's not even really a political statement. That's just a, a basic observation of the prison system of like, if you lock people up and, and, and you, you know, you, you, you restrict their access in certain ways to, to, to loved ones, to healthy food, to recreation, to social activities, uh, they're gonna, they're gonna organize and they're gonna, they're gonna go on strike and they're gonna even like attack guards and they're gonna do all these sorts of things. And at a very basic level, that's, that's the thesis of the site, which I, I don't actually know if it's like a political statement to say it's more of a, like the, the observation that we're trying to back up with uh, these concrete actions. Can you talk a little bit more about how you guys make the decisions around what to put up on the site? What counts as a disturbance? Yeah, it's a, that's a really good question. Actually, uh, we had to we had to do a little bit of studying on like the sort of like best practices for data collection, um, and part of that is uh, we have uh, definitions of types of events, and that's sort of the the driving force of of the site. And you can read those definitions on our search page on the website. They're on the bottom of the search page. And so that makes it a lot easier to, to like to decide what events to include or not include. Um, but the basic parameter, which I already said, was that um, it's uh, more than t- two or more prisoners. And they're, what, the action is, is geared at like some sort of abuse or incarceration itself. So, you know, moldy food or... Uh, you know, an abusive guard or uh, restriction to access to the, the phones or something. You know, these are things that like these would be like, OK, absolutely included on the site. What we, we, what we don't want to do and we don't want to deny that this stuff is like happens all the time. But we're just not interested in, in cataloging like prisoner on uh, prisoner violence. Um, and that's uh, obviously that is in some ways sparked by the terrible living conditions of these people are are put in uh but it just that's what gets a lot more complicated to like to to catalog and also it's yeah just it, it would, we have to have some sort of limits on what we can reasonably say we're gonna we're gonna chronicle but then with so within that so it's like collective action not not only geared at other prisoners then we we sort these actions into uh the different event types which would be uh you know everything from hunger strike to setting a fire setting something on fire to a commissary boycott to we have also a generic like disturbance of, of and that we use that one if like something definitely happened but people it's very unclear what different sorts of groups are saying different things happen like you know it's, it's kind of a three-way fight inside prison so maybe the guards union is saying something and the prison administration is saying something totally different and the prisoners are saying something totally different and it's like if we really can't really realistically determine what happened and we'll just call it disturbance is kind of like our uh you know catch-all but we we try to avoid that when we, we most of the, almost all of the events we can really easily categorize into one of our other event types 
I'm curious about why you decided to include Canada in this project. Like in its description, it is trying to track prisoner resistance, both in the U.S. and in Canada. And then after you made mm-hmm. that decision, what similarities and differences have you seen in terms of stories about resistance on the inside in the U.S. versus in Canada? The the full story is actually we, uh, we were a bit more full of ourselves and we thought we could do uh, the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. And... Uh, that was, uh, we bit off more than we could chew. And that's, that's another way we'd like to expand. We'd like to actually expand into Mexico. And we, we have some events already that aren't on the site. But, um, and there are, there's also like a language thing that, uh, uh, that, that is another, um, just an added thing if we're going to be studying Mexico also. But as far as Canada, there, there were these like, uh, you know, we, we knew people that were doing support to the, there's been a couple of uprisings in the past couple of years in, in Canada, like in Saskatchewan, and even the, in the 2018 prisoner strike. One of the first actions, I think, was, uh, I think, in Nova Scotia. Uh, maybe, I hope I'm remembering that right. Uh, and they, like, uh, a couple of days before the start date, the official start date of the, the prisoner strike, they, uh, there were some protests in a prison in Nova Scotia, and they released these demands, and that was very exciting. So um, at a basic level, there's already been these kind of material and concrete connections across the U.S.-Canada border. And, um, and, 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 and people in the collective have like, you know, just have like the friends of friends have been working, doing support for these uh, or, or, you know, corresponding with these people that take these actions. So it, it, in, it, in some ways, it just was an easier fit. Um, and as far as the differences or similarities, I think that uh, – I, I, I couldn't answer that definitively right now, but uh, that's that's something that some that someone that is asking that question they could go to our site and very easily access all these different sorts of events and and draw their own conclusions. You talked about this a little bit already um, in terms of like hoping that this project will expand, but do you want to talk more about where you're hoping this project will go in the future? Yeah, I I think. Uh, we, we have big dreams and we're also limited by our uh, capacity and also we're, we're all, it's just all volunteer run at this point. Um, and that, yeah, it's just like, that's, that's fine. But that just means we have to, we have day jobs and do this in our, in our spare time. And that sense it's a labor of love and it's a thing we think is really important. But if, uh, you know, in the future, if, if, if we could get funding, we could, we could pay like web developers, for instance, and we could pay people with like, a lot more experience working with data and doing visualizations and stuff. And we could turn when there's these sites that inspire us, like, you know, the prison policy initiative, but also something like the counted, which um, chronicled the deaths at the hands of police in the U S I think that's a project that the guardian sort of started. So this is, this is projects that are, are, are beautiful and really, really important for people trying to make sense of our tumultuous world and, and the violence that that goes on every day. And, we would like to be a project like that, that, that can, you know, generate these beautiful graphs so that all sorts of people use that generate maps. And, and that, um, so th- that's, a, that's one, I've already talked about that a little bit, but that, that would be a dream. There's a lot of nice stuff you can do if we, uh, if we um, you know, kind of get our data game together a little bit better. Also, I think that um, there's just a lot of information out there, like, and, and it's, it's, we, we've we've done a good we've done a good job in some years we've done an okay job in other years but we have sort of gaps in, in our timeline right now that we know there is many many more actions in years like you know, 2012 and 2013 for instance and we've we're, so that's that's the sort of historical research and we're trying to uncover these actions and to give a more uh, full picture of the past 10 years and from there I mean it's really like we could just keep going back in time and 
yeah, there's 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 many different different ways we could expand. And then one another one that that's I think on the agenda for probably the next six months even is um, open up direct lines of communication with prisoners themselves, which maybe some of us in the group have via other you know just friendships or other organizations and so on and so forth. But I think a direct line with Perilous as this sort of like historic like uh, you know chronicle of actions. I think opening up that direct line of communication with prisoners would be uh, one of the more immediate ways we're going to expand in the next six months. Based on creating this site, do you have any predictions for where prisoner resistance seems to be headed? Yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting question. I, I haven't I haven't thought about it in that way before. The site of like um, reflecting, but also like looking towards the future. I think I'd have to think about that a little bit more. Yeah, I think I think there's like this. In general, there's like incarceration even in the past. Uh, since the 2008 financial crisis is like, you know, there's lots of like different, lots of different states on the state prison level, for instance, in the states is, is um, uh, there, people are trying to figure out all different ways of, of, of like, because there's basically this financial crisis that state governments can't actually uh, operate the prisons that they have. So in, in Michigan, for instance, you know, there's all sorts of solutions. More people are being locked up in county jails. There's a lot more, what's called e-carceration, right? Where people are wearing ankle bracelets. Um, I don't, I don't, I, I don't know if I could say definitively where things will go, but I hope that Perilous as a resource could provide, like provide some historical context for, uh, for the things that will unfold in 2019 and the years to come. Uh, that's it for my questions. Did you have anything you wanted to add or was there anything that you feel like I missed asking you about that you want to talk about? I guess, uh, just one last tiny thing is that uh, we are like also looking for um, any sort of feedback, but also any sort of like uh, help that people would want to offer towards the site. We've already, since we've launched a week ago, we've had um, different sorts of groups reach out to us and, and contribute um, short write-ups for, for the site, which has been amazing. Cause that's, that's really like, that's how it's, the uh, site is going to expand is people. It's, it's kind of like, driven by the public and um but also on the technical side of things like we have let me say the site looks good right now and it and it works but we're also just like if if, if people had you know skills or advice to offer uh this is really like a, a a project uh that that could use support from a wide range of people and yeah just throwing that out there it is currently 12.01 p.m and you've been listening to the prison radio show here on ckut 91 90.3 FM, 91.7 on cable, and www.ckut.ca. There was an interview with Duncan from Perilous Chronicle, a site amassing information about prisoner resistance since 2010 in the U.S. and Canada. Duncan wanted us to pass on Perilous Chronicle's new P.O. Box, where people can send them letters. It's P.O. Box 381, Tucson, Arizona, USA, 85702. Duncan also 